to the Pyramid Podcast, where freelance discuss all things English football pyramid. On today's episode, we'll have a look back at the action from Monday Night Football and the FA Cup replays. We've got a special guest on the podcast to talk all things statistics in football. We'll look ahead to the weekend Premier League action, including Aston Villa versus Man United and West Ham versus Arsenal. We'll preview the key games from the EFL, including Ipswich West Brom and a manager change at Blackburn. We'll reveal the answer to Tomo's trivia question. We'll finish with Laura, who will talk us through Yeovil's upcoming trip to Tombridge Angels. I'm your host, Alex Murphy. Once again, I'm joined by Tom Gallagher and Tom Lawrence. Tomo, really only one place to start after your uh, Foden captaincy on FPL uh, on the, on Monday. I've spoke about on Monday's pod. You said it was a bit of a uh, slip up from you not doing your team, but ended up playing huge dividends for you. Absolutely, yeah. I, sometimes that just happens, doesn't it? You forget to do your team, but it works out better for you because you've not done any tinkering. Actually, my missus did exactly the same. She um. She didn't do a team and had a right go at me when when I both when we both sort of acknowledged the fact that we didn't do our teams. She accidentally captained Dolly Watkins, who got three assists and a goal, and I accidentally captained Phil Foden, who got three goals. So saved my game week, albeit when I had a look at our mini league, every single one of us has got Phil Foden in, in their team. Um, just whether or not you captained him or not. So yeah, ominous stuff from City, though. They look they looked very good. Brentford, tough place to go. I know Brentford did a double against them last year. I think they're the only team to do that. So, so yeah, good win. And it's starting to look very ominous for the rest of the Premier League. Yeah, it is. I have Foden in my side and I didn't captain him. So it's one of those things where you know that other people in your league have captained him. And you're buzzing that he's getting points, but at the same time, they're just gaining points on you each time because of the captaincy. But that's FPL for you. But I just thought it was an absolute embarrassment of riches that they've got now at their disposal. Haaland started, Alvarez started, uh, obviously Kevin De Bruyne started. They brought Doku on. Grealish isn't even getting on. Phil Foden now looks like prime Phil Foden. Bernardo Silva, it's just embarrassing what they're capable of and the players they've got at their disposal to bring on. Boys, have a little look at the FA Cup. Laurie, I want to come to you first about Leeds. Obviously, Leeds went through uh, against Plymouth. I know you've spoken about concentration firmly being on promotion for Leeds, but now we're starting to get to the latter stage of the FA Cup. Would a, a championship side like Leeds start to think, hang on, we got half a sniffer? Yeah, I think for the first time in a long time, I'm taking the FA Cup seriously now. I think when you get to the latter stages, that's when you can start getting a little bit excited about it. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was quite funny, actually, because Plymouth did really well. They were a good side and they sort of uh, equaled us for large periods of the game. And then we just bought Somerville and Rutter off off the bench and we won 4-1 in extra time. So I felt sorry for some of the locals at home park. They probably thought, oh, right, this is what the real quality in the championship looks like. And it was quite funny to watch. But uh, I'd be obviously from this point on, the further you go into the tournament, the uh, more exciting it gets. And to see the Leeds fans... Leeds fans flood Wembley would be good if you could get to the semi-final. But um, first and foremost, of course, the league is the most important thing. But we're flying on all fronts at the moment. So exciting times. We spoke on the last pod about Morgan Whitaker being top goal scorer in the championship. Did he play in the FA Cup tie? How did he look? Uh, non-existent, to be honest with you. I thought we were uh, way too good for them on the night. Uh, he didn't actually play right up front, just played in behind Hardy, their number nine, who's quite a good player normally as well. But on a, on the attacking front, pretty um, pretty muted, I think, Plymouth were. And obviously, we had the strength in that area. And that's why we won the game by four goals. So, uh, yeah, not his night, but um, he's got a lot more to give. And I reckon he'll be at a Premier League club next season. 
Just a bit of news today I saw on Leeds, I think, as well. Is it that Bournemouth are going to take up the option to buy Sinistera? Is that 20 mil coming in for Leeds? Happy with that? Yeah, I think it's what we bought him for. So um, he was kind of touted as a as a, one of the rats sink, uh, leaving a sinking ship in the summer. So good riddance. Tomo, one other game from the FA Cup just to talk on. Uh, Chelsea at Villa, I must admit, didn't give Chelsea much of a hope, especially after what we spoke about on the last pod and the pressure. Uh, Pochettino was under and how Villa are at Villa Park but looks like Chelsea absolutely dominated and ran out worthy winners Yeah it was definitely their best performance of the season they um, completely dominated played some good football as well especially that second goal Um, it's a sweeping move and Malo Gusto's cross in for Nico Jackson who looked like an assured sort of prime Didier Drogba like heading in that ball but this is the thing with Chelsea, we spoke about all season. They've got quality players. It's just maybe the wrong mix of quality players. And 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 what I mean by that is basically all young quality players, all young um players with potential. So you're gonna you're gonna get weeks like this where it all comes together. A little bit like say the Man City game. I know they didn't win that one, but they were brilliant, weren't they, when it was four four. And and then they'll get weeks like the Wolves game where it won't click and it won't come together. And it just the blend of that squad just still doesn't feel right, even though look, last night was a great performance and they fully deserved the win. I was, I was a little bit disappointed in Villa, to be honest, because, but maybe they've got their eye on other things like the Conference League. They'll be favourites for that. And obviously they want to get into that Champions League spot in the Premier League. So not too disappointed, I guess, given, um, I guess they'll, they'll play less games now. Yeah, the only thing I would say on Villa is I looked to see if they played a, a bit of a weakened side and it definitely wasn't. I know Esri Konz has got injured, who's massive for them. And that could be a long-term injury, but it looked like, uh, obviously with him out, Ming's still out, they still had a really, really strong side out. Um, so maybe a glimmer of hope for United at the weekend, but we'll come on to that later. Uh, yeah, FA Cup will be back though, I think, boys, in the next rounds later in this month. So we'll obviously cover those games as they happen. Right, well, uh, delighted to say we've been joined by a special guest uh, for this part of the podcast, uh, Dave, aka Statman Dave. Dave, welcome to the show, mate. Thank you for coming on. Cheers, great to be here. Um, I've got a lot, a lot of knowledge of of Premier League, European football, but you asked me about Wrexham, don't have a clue, <laughs> or Yeovil Town to put to put that oh. in context as well. Sorry, guys. You don't want to stay on and do our National League South roundup then. Look, I'd love to say that, yeah, I can get involved, but unfortunately, it's just, you know, it's not quite, I've not quite gone down to those depths yet. I've had a look at the, I think I looked at the National League North for a team about two or three seasons ago. That was when Gateshead were really, really good. And they had a, they've got a few players, obviously, that play in league football now, but unfortunately, no, the, the knowledge isn't quite there. No, it's better than most with that knowledge. <laughs> uh, most people who listen to the pod will know who you are, Dave, uh, from being on Twitter and following football. But just want to do a quick introduction about you and what your role is. Well, I just I like football. Watch a lot of football. I'm an analyst uh, on the BBC podcasts with Chris Sutton. Um, Cesc Fabregas is a new one on Peter Crouch podcast back in the day. So you just talk shit on football and um, from a stats perspective, you know that kind of like and tactical analysis, just diving into those types of things. So yeah, a lot of fun for me. Yeah. So. Dave, I met you, I don't know what it was, in your Squawker days, must have been eight, nine years ago, was it? And as we both know, Squawker was a stats, is a stats-based company. Um, and I just wanted to know, even back then, did you, 
did you think that you were going to create a niche in, in this sort of industry for yourself where you were content creating about um, stats or? I, th- I think it's one of those things where sometimes in life, thing you know, opportunities or doors kind of open themselves um, open. Obviously, from working for a startup, I always had that idea that I wanted to have my own business. I wanted to be... Um, you know, an entrepreneur, which is a really like sort of weird term, but at the same time, it's probably describes what I do now. I've got lots of different businesses that do lots of different things. And I think there was always a, a love of football. Obviously, I grew up watching Manchester United, season ticket holder when they were when they were good. Uh, you know, 2005 to 2011 was when I was kind of going my mom week in, week out. And it was one of those things where I always thought football was always going to be a passion, you know, from a, from a sort of mathematics background, I could have been a banker, could have, you know, gone down that, that line. But I think it's, it's really important to do something that you really enjoy. And obviously Squawker was a great entry into, into that. And, you know, I got kind of lucky in a sense of used to do data, be a data analyst, used to be a product manager. And I kind of slipped into this YouTube talking about football. Yeah. I was a little bit mouthy in the office. And I think that's kind of like, you know, grew it up. You've got to be, you've got to be strong with your opinions in football and, and kind of, stick with certain ideas so kind of got the you know a bit of a breakthrough there and then after about a year a year and a half doing that doing that job kind of quit my job in London which is a bit stupid looking back on it but I suppose it gives you that bit of fire to start your own thing and build up your own you know channel or your own business and stuff so that's kind of where I'm at now it's it's been a journey to say the least that was eight years ago I think when I quit my job so it's been a it's been a long time yeah, over over the course of that time, uh, Dave, obviously you said you've you've gone out um, self-employed and solo, but probably now one of the more recognisable content creators in the football industry, YouTube, social media. Um, last time I looked, 420k followers on Twitter, 380k subscribers on YouTube. Just have you sort of noticed that there's been kind of demands or scrutiny or criticism that's come along with that and just how you've kind of dealt with that, really? Oh, yeah. People love to hate, don't they? I think there's that that's kind of part of the, the game. I think... For me, it's it's all about, you know, bringing that kind of knowledgeable side of football. It's more of an education. It's not as reactionary, let's say, as maybe a fan channel or someone that wants to kind of make a name for himself. So it's never been that bad, to be quite honest. I never had that much of, uh, you know, people being angry about what I'm saying. It's quite difficult. You know, if it comes from a logical position, I find that you can't really annoy too many people. But of course, they're people. And I think yeah, you've got to have rules on social media. You know, if, if someone says something that, that's too bad you're just going to block them and then that's it done and I think that's something that people should really use utilize a lot more it's kind of you know you have a policy if someone goes too far then that's you know unfortunately that's it as content creators we're creating content and you know if you you block someone that can't see the content anymore that's kind of that's it that's the game so it's a a difficult one you know there's always a time that you think you might say something that you don't mean and people will take it out of context and people build off the back of that. They make videos and whatnot. But at the same time, I think you've just got to make the content for yourself and for your like audience. And and just think, no, if, if I enjoy making a video, like at the moment I'm making a video on Manchester United, I spent the last day watching every single one of Man United shots, categorizing them, looking at all the situations they turn the ball over from a high turnover perspective and then working out whether Man United were good or bad at pressing. And that's something that I enjoy doing. And the audience hopefully will enjoy that as well. Obviously, it's part of a bigger video, but it's it's that analysis where you're really going back and you're looking at what's what's right and what's wrong. And I suppose that's kind of where my heart is. It's not in a negative way. I'm not an angry person online. So it's very difficult for people to be angry with me. And if they are, it's just like, is it that deep? 
And I think that's the big thing. It's not that deep. We're talking about football. It's a game. It's a bit, it's a bit of fun. We're not talking about politics. We're not talking about, you know, discussions where people are polarised. So, yeah, I suppose it's just kind of doing what you love, backing it, and then if someone doesn't like it, cool. That's absolutely yeah. fine. There's loads of other people that can do similar things. You know what I mean? Statman Dave, I want to ask you a question about stats, funnily enough. Um, and we speak about them quite a lot on this podcast. Tomo's positioned himself as our Statman Dave, if you like. And I'm mm. probably the one that scrutinises him the most. Um, <laughs> I, know that, I know that stats have got a, a place in the game. Um, I'm all for that. Um, it's normally the context in which they use and the narratives of which they push, uh, push, which irritates me the most. But there's one thing I want you to clear up for us, right? And that is expected, <laughs> expected stats. So expected yeah. goals, expected assists, expected, uh, expected points. I'll give you a little example, right? Now, I know you said your National League self-knowledge isn't uh, what it could be, but mine is. <laughs> I'm a Yeovil Town fan, yeah. so I watch them every week. We're top of the league, 10 points clear, game in hand, right? Runaway leaders yep. of the league. Now, last week, an expected uh, league table surfaced. So where we'd be on expected mm. points. And Yeovil were third, right? We're 10 points clear with the game in hand, but in the expected league, we're third. And I'm sat there yep. thinking to myself, if the algorithm that works out these expected points can be that wrong, what the hell is the relevance of it in football? Why is it used so much? And what are your thoughts on expected stats, Dave? Because the, the expected stats will tell you about a longer-term trend, and I think that that's kind of important. I think that the other side of it is you can get players that break expected goals models because they're so good at finishing. Human Son, uh, Jamie Vardy are two players in the Premier League that just consistently break those models. And you've got to remember that it's based on like maths in a sense of it's based on like the law of large numbers where you're eventually regressed your mean and then it's the whole population of players so there is more work to be done in these expected statistics but they do have good correlation with league finish they do have good correlation with how teams are actually performing like for example if you look at um, um Iriola, the the Bournemouth manager if you look at the difference between the expected goals that they're creating and the expected goals that they're conceding, you can really see the growth of them as a team. And obviously, you know, we know as football fans that Bournemouth are actually a really, really solid team this season. They've got better and better as it goes on. I think the big thing is to make sure the context is there. And, you know, from a National League South perspective, that XG model probably should be different to the XG model in the Premier League because of the quality of player. And that's where you start to apply Bayesian statistics on top of what the model is already in terms of taking what uh, is the, the striker that's taken that shot, what's his distribution over his career and so forth. So I think they are great. I think they're a starting point that are good. I think from a recruitment perspective, they are absolutely incredible because you can tell whether a player is good or not by an attacker, let's say, by looking at their expected assist numbers and their expected goals numbers more than their just raw goals and assist numbers. It gives you more context. Like a player could have like, five chances in a league season and score five goals or there'd be a player that might score two goals but have a really high xg that's getting into really good positions and it's a recruitment decision in that sense are you picking the player that's just going to score the goals and he's in form right now or are you going to pick the player that's getting into those better positions because i'd say nine times out of ten you pick the player that's got a better higher you know xg in a sense of they're getting there they're consistently having these shots and so forth but i understand that it's a metric that's quite young you know if we take a it's 
how long has it been around for? 10, 10 years? It's still quite young. It's still not where it should be. And I think that's the big thing. It's not the be all and end all. And going back to that kind of like the Man United thing I was talking about before, I looked at three different stats providers that had three different ways that were basically, when you look at the stats, it said Man United are good at pressing. As a, as a fan, as an analyst, as someone who watches them week in, week out, I think they're absolutely garbage at pressing. <laughs> and we went through and we looked through. The reason why I looked at like 300 and something shots over the last two days is because I was like, why are these stats telling me that Man United are good? Yet when I watch Man United, they're absolutely garbage. And they concede so many chances because of how open they are in certain games. And I think that's a big thing. It's kind of like the best stats aren't here yet at the end of the day, in my opinion. I don't think, I don't think that there needs to be a lot more work done on it. And then you look at the XG models and there's still a lot you need to do on the XG models. So I think they're good for context. I think they're good for recruitment, but they're not where they could be in the future. I'm glad you said so, that because I agree with you that there's work to be done on the sort of progression of stats. And like you say, sometimes they can be bang wrong. That Man United example, obviously being one. I do agree with the recruitment mm. side of things. Um, I think Brentford are a team that kind of started a trend a long time ago and used like metrics and stats of players. Like yeah. you say, which players are getting into the positions, like the Moneyball film, like taking it a page out of that. Would that interest you? going into like a recruitment type of stats environment, a job like that and working for a football club, looking at potential signings and stuff. Yeah, I think long-term, the, the 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 kind of the goal of life or the dream of life is to be Man United director of football. That's kind of where I want to go. And obviously that's a big, a big dream. But in this world, look, you got to just back yourself in certain environments. And look, every day I don't wake up and think, oh, this is the day when I'm going to do it or so forth. But there's a lot of work that I'm trying to do in the background at the moment that'll be more employable for that field. And whether that's Manchester United in 20 years' time or 30 years' time, it's something that I would aspire to do. I think I've built up a decent eye for talent over my years. I think I've got a good idea and a good read on how managers and schemes and tactics and pressing and set pieces and all that type of thing works. So that's kind of like a long-term dream is getting into the football side of things. I always had like a a thought in my mind that at 35, I go, right, we're just going to go and work in football. But it's come round pretty fast. It's, two, it's, it's about a year and a half away. So we might extend that a little bit further, sticking with the content for a bit further. But I've got experience working with, with clubs. I've worked with Premier League clubs on certain different things in football. So it, it's an aspiration for sure, but I think it's probably something that I will do. I think content is amazing and I love doing content. I think I'll always do some sort of content in it. But there's going to be a point where you you are looking at working within the, the game, you know, be it in England, be it in Germany, be it in wherever, Brazil. Imagine living in Brazil. That'd be absolutely fucking sick. All right. And again, it's one of the things that football gives you a great ability to move. It gives you such such opportunity. And that's why it's a great sport and a great place to be because you can get that mobility in life and, you know, you're doing something that you enjoy. I think there's loads of jobs that I could do but maybe wouldn't enjoy anywhere near as much as what I do right now. Yeah, it's it's good to hear, Dave, that you're you're informing your um sort of stats analysis basically versus the eye test, because that's always the argument, is it, with the old school yeah. football fan when it comes to I, I would call Loro a bit of an old school football fan where he just he relies solely on his eye and <laughs> he has he has got a, a fantastic knowledge um of the game. Mm. But where where do you see the sort of the balance between stats versus the eye test? Because because I think that's that's probably the most important thing uh, with stats is it, it backs up your previously held opinions or potentially 
um, like you said, with that Man United pressing um, example, it takes away from that opinion. Where, where, where would you would you say it's a 50-50 split between those two um, sort of styles of analysis? I think that the first and foremost, I think you, you've got to have a feel for the game. I think the game is the most important thing. So I'd say if you were like breaking it down, like the eye test or, or watching a game or having your own analysis is the most important thing. And I think stats are great. Like you're saying, Tom, it gives you... Like it gives you the ability to challenge something yourself or like think about something in a different way. And I think from that kind of like maths and, and stats base that I did at university, you have to sometimes like challenge what you think. You know, we have incredible bias in our minds. Like we all have bias when we watch a player. Like my opinion of a player will be completely different to your three opinions of a player in some aspect. So it, it's good to get extra information. I think that's one of the big things. You know, if you want to recruit based on statistics, it's a great way to build a bigger net. You're catching more fish versus you going and having to go to every game, drive to a game as a scout and go and watch, you know, the under 18s game in Norfolk. Then you go into like Scotland and then you go, you know, it's a smaller net. Whereas if you throw the stats in, you're creating this massive net. And yes, there is still definitely a space for the analysis side after that, you know, watching a player and so forth and building on it. But I think it's, it, it, it's a powerful thing that's going to only grow. And I think that's the thing. When you look at like line breaking passes, or certain statistics, like when you look at the stats, you can tell when a player is elite, elite. Like, for example, centre-backs, right? We all know that uh, the best centre-back in the world would win every single one of their tackles, every single one of their headers, every single one of their duels in all aspects of how they play. They'd be incredible on the ball. They'd play out from the back. They'd, they'd, they'd break, pass, break lines with their passing. You can build that from a stats model. Like, I use Virgil van Dijk. I think it's 2006. 1819, I use his profile as a profile to find players that are centered halves. And that's where the likes of Kanate, Upamakano, um, Sven Botman, like all these players had like similar traits to Virgil van Dijk from a stats perspective. And those three, those four players are like completely different, but they're all really good with their own right. Like Sven Botman at Newcastle is one of the most biggest mockeries in the world, 35 million quid. This guy is like, we haven't even seen where he's going to go. Like technically, we haven't seen what he was doing at Lille at Newcastle yet. There's still another level for him, but dominant in duels. And that's something where you can build that with each player. You can build that for a winger. You build that for a midfielder, bring that. And there's things that will be there. And then looking at it as a population of players, if you look at, let's say, uh, you know, let's say XG, for example, or let's look at goals, let's say. There's going to be players that are in this population of goals. The players you want to look at at the top. And then why are they in that position? You know, does that highlight someone for you that you want to look at from a scouting perspective? Or is it something where you're like, okay, I've got a player on my team that does this. What does this player? Like, for example, if you spent, you know, two days looking at Lionel Messi's goals in his entire career, I imagine you find insight in that. And that's kind of like stats in a sense of like you, you, you repetition, repetition, repetition. And then eye test comes in, you work it down. It's funny though, because I think, I think the eye test thing is one of those things that gets chucked at me quite a lot. And if I were to sit down and go through a game of football with someone that says, oh, you, you don't know what you're talking about, I'd say they'd, they'd finish the day being like, oh, that was really interesting. That was quite cool. I didn't look at the game like that because I look at the game in and in in I find quite a, like, a different way. And I suppose that's one of the things that's really important. Like I, I learned football before I learned statistics. Like that's the nature of it. I was watching football before I was doing, doing like analysis. So there's like a level to it, but you know, fair play. If that's, if that's the only thing people can say, then... 
I'm living a great life. You know what I mean? Like, gives a shit. <laughs> I, was, I was going to ask you that, Dave, actually, about obviously since you've been um, submersed in statistics, have you found that your enjoyment of football's like wavered at all watching a game, sort of thinking about it statistically? So maybe not like a game that you're working or like a United game, but if you were to watch a EFL game on a Sunday lunchtime and weren't working it, are you thinking statistically about the game rather than just watching the game unfold and trying to enjoy a 90 minutes of football? No, I think that the most important thing for for like someone in that wants to aspire or wants to be in like a analytics role or whatever, you, you need to make sure that you enjoy what you're doing. And there's times I think that I think I found this probably like when I was maybe 23, 24. I was going for a point where I watched so much football, like almost too much football, and it got to a point where it was like you're watching like a nil-nil draw, and it's absolutely garbage. Yeah. And like some people enjoy nil nil, like there's some good nil nil draws out there. If it's tactically interesting, loads of things happen, cool, absolutely fine. But there's some nil nil draws that are garbage. So I kind of like live by the rules of I watch teams I want to watch. So like I'll I'll go, you know, let's say Atalanta, like Atalanta, they always play, they play good football under Gasparini. Or like Sassuolo are really good under De Zerbi or um, I'm trying to think who I've been watching this season. I've been watching Leverkusen this season under Xabi Alonso. So I try and very much watch the things that I want to watch for an enjoyment perspective. So it's not like that deep work environment, if that makes sense. So I'd watch Leicester City in the championship. I'd watch Southampton. I'd watch teams that like do something different. Um, And that's something that's quite important. I think going back to that initial point, I watched a lot of like garbage football. And I was like, I'm a bit sick of this at the moment. And then Lewandowski scored five goals in what, 12 minutes? Yeah. And it's honestly really, really peculiar where you're like, I'm so sick. Of, like it was Wolfsburg, Bayern. It was a garbage first half. Then Lewandowski comes off, off on half time, scores that many goals. Like, okay, well, this is why we stick around for this stupid sport. And I think that's really important. I'd say that's one of my most, you know, if if you don't want to watch the, the Sunday two o'clock because it's two teams that just play garbage football, you don't need to go and watch something else or go outside or do something else in your life. And I think that idea of not having to watch stuff was really liberating for me. It really was. Yeah, and so obviously, as you've mentioned, Davo, you're a um, you're a, you're not a, you're a big United fan. Been a season ticket holder in the past. Um, so what? It's been a poor season to say the least so far for mm. United. What, what's your um, main takeaways and and sort of analysis of United and Eric Ten Hag this season? It's tough because we've been rubbish. Like we've been really bad. And like the, the level of Man United over the last sort of five years has been bad. Um, I think we had some really good times on Oligon and Solskjaer and really enjoyed that. You played really well against the big teams. But there's been so much that's marred that, like signing Cristiano Ronaldo again, like signing these older players. It's not really culturally what Manchester United should be doing. It's not culturally what United are as a football club. It's not the attacking football is such a big thing. Eric Ten Hag's United have been absolute garbage to what they should be. You know, the, the the flashpoint, I think, this season was when he was fixating on being like, we're not, you know, I'm not building a new Ajax here. You got the job because the Ajax played really good football and scored loads of goals. Yet Man United aren't scoring loads of goals and playing good, you know, playing good attacking football. They aren't pressing well. They're not playing well against big, big teams. They're getting carved open by anyone. Defensively, they're all over the place. Saying all of that, I do empathise with Eric Ten Hag. He's had some garbage owners, a garbage director of football, 
the way that, that the whole football club has been run and internally and, and the, the failings of Manchester United have been apparent to everyone to see. So it's very difficult for him to do the job if, for example, like Mason Mount is a prime example. Mason Mount is a very, very good player. Man United should never have bought Mason Mount in the sun, summer. Why would you buy a player that's got 12 months left on his contract for 50, 60 million quid? The, the thing that comes back on that is he was an Eric Ten Hag signing. He wasn't. They're like, okay, Mason Mount. Would you like Mason Mount? Yeah, of course. You buy Mason Mount. Why, why does anyone buy Mason Mount who's got 12 months left on his contract? Is I don't understand. 60 million quid that cost. So you can't buy another centre-back, which United needed. You can't buy a new left-back, which Man United needed. You can't get another defensive midfielder, which Man United needed, because you've bought a, basically a number 10 that Man United have got quite a lot of number 10s. You go on top of Anthony that there's been a humongous failing in the market, which we can all... I thought Anthony would be a lot better than he is. His off-the-field problems have massively, massively, massively affected him. It's something that doesn't get spoke about. Like, that, like he was a very, very good player at Ajax. He was a very, very good player in the last Champions League season he played. He was one of the best players in the Champions League. The off-the-field stuff has been massive. And if you want to look at that, like go into Brazilian press, go on to Globo and translate the articles. It's absolutely insane. But like that was Eric Ten Hag's player. He's got to take the brunt of that responsibility. But Eric Ten Hag doesn't decide to spend 80 million quid on him. And that's what Man United had to do because there was no one else that they were looking at the market, which is absolutely insane. I could show you that season, I could have showed you 10 wingers that are left-footed to play on the right-hand side so, to have these metrics of, of stats. And it's like... Just, just on that, Dave, you just touched on Sven Botman and it being incredible the deal Newcastle getting for him. You spoke about the, you know, the, the stats that are available to probably, you know, compare against an amazing right winger like you do with Van Dijk at centre-half, let's just say Amares or something like that to give a top club these options for right wing. Why aren't clubs using that? Like we spoke about Brentford, spoke about Brighton. Um, I've seen that Ineos have said that United are going to start to use data to be make more informed decisions and fans are sort of losing their mind about how much of a positive that is. Why aren't global clubs of that size using that when it's, to, it's shown it, to be working so well? You need to buy into it. Like you have to accept it. And that's the thing. Like football clubs are, are very old and traditional. Like, you, you know, you have, you're basically devaluing people's jobs. Because you're saying you can do something on on mass, and people are afraid of that. Instead of what they should be doing is like, how do we make ourselves better with the use of that? Um, you look at Manchester United. Go and have a look at the guy who is the head of data at Man- data science at Manchester United. He used to work in fashion. Like, I, I don't care how good you are at your job. If you don't like, there's no point in knowing statistics if you don't know football. That, and it's evident. It's evident. Yeah, cool. You could be building the best database in the world. How are you supposed to communicate that internally? How are you supposed to communicate? And that is the, the problem with Manchester United is a lack of real poor communication between departments. So that in itself is kind of like why clubs miss out on these players because they think they've made the solution by getting a guy that works in fashion or other clubs that may be afraid of data. You know, you mentioned Brentford and Brighton, Manchester City, Liverpool, Arsenal. All these teams at Newcastle, all these teams are doing very, very well, are using it. So if you don't use it, you're going to get left behind. Manchester United have been left behind. There's other clubs in the Premier League that have been left behind because they don't do it. You know, there's, there's certain clubs that you that just don't want to spend, are afraid of spending, have been burnt previously because of they own other clubs in Europe 
and they've used data previously and then they didn't like the data. So there's this really weird complex in a sense. And I suppose it is about education. Um, it's about the best teams in the world use it. So why are you not using it? You know, the Red Bull clubs, Manchester City, the City Group, Girona. You know, everyone's talking about Girona being this like brilliant example of something that's really nice in the league. Oh, it's not Barcelona, it's Manchester City. Let's be honest with ourselves, it's Man- It's a Manchester City team. How does that work with FFP? I don't even have a clue. How have they got all these players on on free transfers or of low budget? Because it's part of a, the City football group. Like, it's not a nice story. It's them using data to win La Liga and using their players and getting the right coaching that, fit, that coaches in the City way. That's like, you should look at those examples as a football club and go, okay, right, we need to invest in this. How much would a data team cost compared to a transfer? £80 million on Anthony, right? I could build the best data team in the world. I could get the best guys in the world for 80 million quid. Like the, the smartest of smartest, the quants, the nerds, the people that like love that shit. So like you have to look at it from that perspective. And I suppose clubs don't like to look at it like that. Underpay staff that aren't footballers. And that's kind of consistent. I was going to ask you about Anthony, David. You've, always t- you've already touched on a few facts that you think might have contributed to him not possibly um, hitting the heights that we expected. But he did come from the Dutch league. So from a stats perspective, how do you translate someone that's doing really, really well in the Eredivisie with Ajax into knowing that those stats are going to come over and be just as good in the Premier League? Because obviously the competition and the opponents that they're facing are a lot different and the Premier League is a lot higher standard. So is there, I mean, obviously there's an element of risk involved in any transfer, but surely that gulf between leagues is something that needs to be taken into consideration. And how does that work stats-wise? Really love to share my screen right now, but I'll try and hold it to camera. So this is like the effect of, oh, it's completely gone wrong around. Basically, it, someone, someone did an analysis on the expected metrics we were talking about before and how they change league by league. So if you name me one league that's come to the Premier League recently from an attacking perspective that haven't performed. European, so top five European leagues, there's one league it's gone from that league to the Premier League, and there's been a consistent level of players not excelling. Bundesliga? Yeah, Bundesliga. The Bundesliga. So we've got Timo Werner, and we've got Kai Havertz. So the difference between going from Germany to the Premier League from an expected statistics perspective, from this guy's analysis, it's a minus 38%. So you're basically losing a third of their XG and their XA in, in really simplistic terms. That's like super simplifying the model. So there is a massive impact on moving from league to league. The two leagues that I think are very, very good from a you know league to the Premier League, I think Portugal is insanely good. Like Portugal is top tier at the moment, similarly to France. I think France and Portugal are two leagues where Premier League clubs should recruit for. And I think you look at the Portuguese second league, you look at the French second league as well. Both really, really good. But you have to understand, you know, that like like we're saying, it, it's really hard to model that. Like it's difficult to translate that league to league because at the end of the day, there's only a finite amount of players that have gone over. But there is the Bundesliga tax on forwards. It, it's I, apparent. Yeah, I was, um, I'm glad you said that because obviously Man United in the last few years, we bought three attackers from Dortmund um, in Kagawa, Mkhitaryan and Mick. Sancho who have all, um, if I put it kindly, failed. Yeah. Um, uh, but one player who hasn't failed this season, um, 
who I'd like to talk about and get your opinion on is Kobe Mainu, who has, well, this is definitely his 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 big breakthrough season at United. He's been he's been very impressive in the centre of midfield. We spoke on the last pod about him potentially being called up to the England squad and even making the England squad for the Euros. What do you make first make of his breakthrough and um, make of his chances of potentially getting the call up from Gareth? I think it was was always coming. I think the big thing that um, Kobe did over the summer was grow. Like he looked the end of last season, he looked quite small. He looked like a seventeen year old. This season, he looks big. He looks like he's put weight on. Looks like he can handle the Premier League. Sometimes that doesn't happen. With remember Angel Gomez, yeah. Similarly, like technically, like Angel Gomez technically is much better than Mayno, and that's not saying Mayno's bad technically. It's just saying the level of Gomez was was ridiculous. But didn't have the physicality, didn't have the strength, didn't have that ability to get around the pitch. And I think with with Mayno, it's it's come at the perfect time. I think. United needed a central midfielder from a recruitment perspective. They should have bought like two or three, you know, over the last few years and they never did that. But the way that he's come on, and I do think he's more of a number eight than a number six. I think at number six, he did a job for Manchester United for a bit, but you could see him drifting in out of games. That adds 18. You'd expect that, you know, he's not a seasoned professional like Casemiro. But I think what what we're starting to see is, is is real quality on the ball, is quality in decision-making. Went to the West Ham game at the weekend and there was just moments where almost the game slowed down for him and the game was really fast for everyone else where he slipped a few tackles, played forward or made the right decision. And there was something in the sense of almost a Paul Scholes level of understanding of football where he, he, he's just very, very aware. And I think in comparison to maybe a Paul Pogba, you know, a, a you know, United Academy player that's been bought from Le Havre and came through the academy, Maynou's got the brains. He's got the brains now. He's got the consistency already from a decision-making perspective. And I don't know where he can't go. And that, that's the beauty of it. We, we all saw the winner against Wolves. Like, that is unbelievable. The lad's 18. He's, he's just, it's a clutch moment. The lad's not supposed to be here for scoring goals and getting assists, but he's just cre- out of something, out of nothing, you know, gone through and, and, and slotted it away. That is the level of Mayno. I spoke to, I, we work with a club called Fletcher Moss in Manchester that's had the likes of Rashford, Lingard, um, Danny Welbeck, I think, came through there. He, they had um, Cobby train with them. And one of the things that one of the head coaches, Dave, said to me was like, he's very much like Paul Pogba in terms of how he plays the game right now. Like street footballer can beat you 1v1, can beat you in the dribble and he'll make it. And he'll make, he would have made it in any academy in the world. And that's kind of, almost the failings, but the brilliance of Manchester United right now. Like, Mayno is a player that will get through at any time. He's generational in a sense of his ability. Man United need to start creating players that are of a similar, uh, like, ilk, of a similar quality consistently, and then they'll become a successful football club again. In terms of England, the worst thing I would say for Mayno is to go and play for England over the summer for himself. I think the best thing for England would be to have him in the squad. But you've got to remember his age. You've got to remember that he's he had a massive growth spurt last summer. Need to manage that. Need to manage his minutes. Need to manage his exposure to football to get the longevity out of him. Look, if England want to have Co- um, have Mayno as a as a you know as a ten fifteen year career, you can't be throwing him in like a Theo Walcott. You can't be making him the, the the pinnacle of it. We've we've seen that with X amount of players over the years. So I think it's got to be patience. I think if he's in the squad, fantastic. Would I say 
Should he start right now? No, he probably should take the summer off and manage himself and manage his fitness. That's from a Manchester United perspective. From Southgate's perspective, yeah, why not take the guys? He's a brilliant footballer. You know, why would you not want a player of that quality? Dave, I watched your Xabi Alonso analysis on YouTube yesterday. Um, Mind-bogglingly <laughs> thorough. For an eye test man like me, it opened my eyes significantly. And you've convinced me that he's the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's a, a mix between <laughs> Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp. So I think yeah. I know the answer to this question. But um, do you think, obviously he's at Leverkusen at the moment, do you think he can transfer that over a mere success in the Premier League? And would he be a good fit at your Manchester United? <laughs> no, he'd be a bad fit at Manchester United because he played for Liverpool. And unfortunately, <laughs> football is like that. So, no, I wouldn't want Chabi Alonso at Manchester United. Do I think he is the best candidate by a country mile for Liverpool? Yes, absolutely. He is by far the best manager they could get on the market. If they get him, that Liverpool will be as competitive as they are on the clock. The one thing with, with Chabi is he's he stumbled on a brilliant system at Dortmund. Like Eric Ten Hag, he kind of come out and said, there's different players at Liverpool, we might play a different way. I'd argue the counter in a sense of the reason why it's working for Leverkusen is because of this ingredient, that ingredient, and that ingredient. So sometimes it's better to not have to change for the players, but keep some sort of identity for yourself. And I think with Liverpool, one of the things that I've thought about for a long time is them switching to a back five, just to change the dynamic, to change how they play, to change what they do. And you know, you think about the players like Grimaldo. If you watch Grimaldo, Grimaldo is probably the best left fullback in the world right now. It's the way that he carries the ball, passes, he's, he's, he's brilliant. Chen Alexander-Arnold is a very, very similar player that fits in. Robertson is a very high and wide left back, same as Fringpong. So those parts of the system work. Midfield, they've got players that probably, you know, McAllister and Caicedo, I think, have been the most misanalyzed players in the world. Like both of them have been bought to be single pivots. Both of them played at Brighton for how long in a double pivot? Like sometimes that misalignment's bad. Saying that Alonso plays a double pivot, McAllister would fit in perfectly. So Bosley could play high, could play low. It would really work out. And, you know, you, you build what Alonso's built in Leverkusen in the Premier League. It will be very successful to do everything right. They press right, they play right, they create right, they score goals, the goals are spread through the team. So not for Man United, for Liverpool would be absolutely spot on. Dave, I just want to um, go back to a point you said. You said you're at the uh, West Ham game and I sometimes at half-time will have a look where you do the sort of two-free-player analysis of United, their breakdown of their stats, then a bit of an overall summary sentence about them. How are these stats collected? Are you there writing these things down? Are there systems that use AI to track these games? And then if that is the case, if it's not someone sat in the ground, when you look at like Skybet, where they've got Opta stats for paying out on bets and tracking the match shots and the shots on target and the offsides, all of that, how is that all being collated and collected? So that they, they do it with um, a team of analysts in a sense that they have, I think they have three people that do it. They have a guy that's a control guy. They have one team that is the home team, one team that's the away team. And it's all done eye, done on screen. It's a bit like play, you know, if you watch anyone play like, um, I don't know, like League of Legends or something like that, where they're on like, they're crazy on the keyboards, again, they're done and so forth. Um, we, we work with um, Y Scout, So we've got a kind of Y Scout license and that's kind of where we get our data from and our numbers from and, and so forth. But that's obviously an, anal an analysis platform as well. So, you know, any event you've got in the Premier League, you want to look at Kobe Vano's 
Kobe uh, Mayno, sorry, his passes in the last three games. You can go and have a look at that. So we, we kind of get it from there. Uh, obviously, from an AI perspective, that is going to be the future. That's where football stats are going to go. Um, and I think it's, it's only a matter of time before that's kind of launched out and so forth. But, you know, very much, you know, using data, having a look at who works well. And, you know, sometimes you see something that I might feel differently on. You know, there's there's players such as Diogo Delo that really splits opinion. And I find it very strange. I think he's a very good footballer. And I think with him, like fullback wise, he's a young fullback and his stats are very, very good. Uh, I think he's a very good football player. I know him personally, and he's a good person. He's a person that wants to learn. He's a person that wants to improve. You know, sometimes his stats split opinion. And it's sort of like, what? I don't know why. Like, yeah, okay, cool. Right, he's made one mistake. Um, or let's say this season, he's been, he, he was bad against Newcastle. He'd probably admit that. But he's probably been Man United's most consistent player. I thought he was brilliant against West Ham United. The block after the Maguire mistake was world-class. And and that's kind of like where sometimes you tweet about a player, people get annoyed about it. All right, cool, fine. <laughs> that's, yeah. I'm just... do, you, do you think there's a little bit in that, Dave, where like, I'll take the Newport second goal as an example. Dallow from a stats might have completed all of his passes and, you know, had a couple shots on target. And, Love you know, this example. That, Go on, that me. sort of thing. But that one where Anthony's tracking him back and the cross comes in and people yeah. say that Dallow's not going out to press him and is out of position right would that here we be go. Stat that would be shown <laughs> here we go what do man united fullbacks do when the ball's wide as it, like tuck in from a tactical perspective they basically sit on the edge of the box you can see it you can see it consistently luke it, I, it, it annoys me it's one of those things that i don't agree with i think you want the fullback out there you want to be stopping the cross getting into the box next time you watch man united the fullbacks do that quite a lot so sometimes, from a stats perspective, if we were analysing that, is that right or wrong? It's right if the manager tells you not to do it, right? So from a stats yeah. perspective, if you're building a model, how many times does a fullback, your fullback go out to close down a winger? We could do that. Then we could do how many times has the fullback been beaten by the winger 1v1? But honestly, if you, like, that's one of the things where you're like, sometimes it's out of, like, it's a team instruction thing that the player has to do. And I think it's quite consistent with Eric Ten Hag's Man United. I don't agree with it. I think it's garbage, but it's something there. That goal is a great goal. How is it scored? Like, where, where, which part of the, 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 the penalty box is it scored? Six-yard yeah, box. Six yeah, striker running to the near post. Yes. There is a player there that is a World Cup winning defender that's won multiple Champions Leagues that doesn't react to a League Two striker running in the near post. <laughs> like, what... What you, if so? If Diogo Dalot is tactically instructed not to press the fullback, and the centre half is supposed to track the run at the near post, doesn't do that, gets a yard on him, then the goalkeeper like chucks it in his own goal. Don't make it like I stand there and I could have it would have hit me. So you've got a goalkeeper mistake. You've got Raphael Varane not tracking a man, like letting a man run off him, and then you've got the tactical instruction side of things. Sometimes with Diogo Delo and Luke Shaw and the left back and the right back, whoever's playing, Wan-Bissaka, it, it's a little bit more than what we understand as, as as fans in a sense. And sometimes it's worth looking a little deeper and being like, okay, hey, right. Yeah. Like for me, that goal, like, number one, you could stop it at source. I agree. Number two, you can stop it with Rafael Varane defending properly. Number four is number three. You can stop it with the, the fullback coming in. Or even before that, Anthony, if he does his job properly and wins a tackle there, you've not even got that problem. Um, but it's really easy for football fans to 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 see that 
first bit and go, that's the issue. And that's where like sometimes it's worth with the eye test going, hold on a minute. If this is consistently happening, I've seen this multiple times, yet your centre-half has been beaten on the near post, that is an issue. And that's where I'd look at that goal and go, Raphael Varane, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. How has how he, like, he run off you? Like, he's not fast, he's not quick. Like, you, you've anticipated this situation how many times in your career, yet you're on your heels. And that, that goes to, like, a, like Man United, the centre-halves are a humongous problem because of how they don't, they're not mobile, none of them are in the prime of their careers, and they, they've got big problems apart from Lisandro, and we know how much of an impact Lisandro has. Like, he is, I'd argue that he's United's best defender. I'd probably say he's the best player on the ball at Man United. I'd, I'd say he's up, he's up there with Bruno Fernandes. I think he's probably even better than Bruno Fernandes in terms of his passing range, how he carries and how well that he can he can spot opportunity and play through the lines. He's not there. Man United are garbage at the back. They just are. Like, they're so bad. They can't play a high line. There's, uh, I was watching a clip today on the pressing, and it was, like, horrendous. I suppose you guys have seen the Jamie Carragher-Arsenal example from this weekend where the two centre-backs are basically, like, in midfield and they're pressing super high. Like, yeah. this was the polar opposite. This was Harry Maguire and Raphael Varane basically just stood there like, we don't know where we are. The, the fullback's about 20 miles over there. Where's my man? What am I doing? I can't step up. The space between the, the lines is so big. And you're like, you know, so, that, for me, that's the biggest problem with United. Yeah, so so just on that positive note about <laughs> Lissandro Martinez, um, obviously we're not going to be with him for the next two months and we certainly won't be with him um, for the Villa game on Sunday, which is a massive game. Um, they, I think they're currently in fourth, obviously in those Champions League spaces. United aspire to be in those spaces. Um, so just one last question today, because obviously we've taken enough of your time um, and thanks so much for that, Dave. But what's your prediction for that game? Obviously, it's a massive game. I think we, we went to Villa Park last year for Unai Emery's first game in charge and got absolutely dominated. Um, so what are your hopes and uh, predictions for that one, Dave? It's tough. Um, I might be there. I might have a ticket in the away end. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm excited for it. I think one of the big things with Villa, if you look at Villa's worst performances from an expected goals against um, metric, they were really bad in both of the games against Newcastle, the 5-1 and the, was it 3-1 or 3-0 last week? Yeah, three, whatever right. it was. Yeah, so both of those games was the worst defensive performance from Villa. What was quite interesting, it was similar to the Man United game at home where they basically were hitting the ball, balls in, in behind the channels in, into the wings, you know, to Gordon and uh, Almiron and, and Jacob Murphy. Man United do that. So from an offensive perspective, United will get chances. They will get chances behind the Villa back line. Emery will squeeze high. I don't imagine he's going to change that. The issue for Manchester United was Villa obviously messed with them, didn't they? Remember the Leon, Leon Bailey behind Andre Anana? Andre Anana basically chucked the ball on his own net. Problem. United need to be far better at set pieces. Defensively, it's going to be a problem. Ollie Watkins versus Man United strikers is a Man United's defender, sorry, is nightmare stuff. With Lozandro, great. With those two, although whoever he plays there, um, you know, I'd rather see Casemiro play centre back than, than, than any of the, the guys we've got at the moment. I really would. That's going to be an issue. Villa will get chances. United will get chances. It's going to be a really open game. You know, could be another 3-2, could be another 4-2, could be a 2-2 draw. I think that's that's the nature of it. Man United need to win this game if they want to get top four. This is a must win. They don't win this game. They've got no chance of getting into, into Europe next season from a Champions League perspective. You know, you look at the 
the Premier League table now, what the, the gap between Manchester United and Villa is currently eight points. This is when you need to start winning these games. This is when you need to start kicking on. So it's a huge, huge game for United, for Villa. Like I, if I was Emery, I go into that game, a, a draw is great. A draw keeps that distance, it keeps that gap. Yeah, Spurs may go ahead of them in the league, but I think Manchester United are going to be a threat. They've been so bad this season that there's going to be a point where they get a little bit better and that hopefully will be at Villa Park. But you never know with these guys. You just never know. So what is the prediction there, Dave? 2-0, 3-2 either way. Who's winning the game? 3-2 United, I'm going to go with. Love it. I think I'm just, it's going to be like, it's going to be stressful. <laughs> Make sure you, you have a nice, you know, if you're at home, get yourself a cocoa, sit on the sofa, just relax yourself. You know, I'm probably going to be at the game, so it won't matter. I'll be within the mix. It'll be great. Look, you know, you'll have the ecstasy, you'll have the frustration, you'll have everything. But yeah, I think it, it's going to be an open, open game just because of the styles of both teams and how good and bad both teams are in certain phases. Like Man United struggled for the first half an hour, probably first 45 minutes with Villa's two uh, tens coming inside. That's something that Villa have done all season. It's not a new thing. Why did Man United have to wait to half time to adjust that? That's one of the problems with Eric Ten Hag. Doesn't adjust things in a pragmatic manner in-game. It just takes too long. Teams have like 20, 15 minutes to basically do the same thing over and over again and then he reacts. You know, that has to be the start point. Whoever's playing fullback on John McGinn, whichever side John McGinn goes on, needs to follow him into midfield and play in midfield when they've got the ball in those situations. That's how to stop Aston Villa, block those two tens out. Then you've got to win the second balls when they go long. And they're really important factors. Hopefully, Eric's learned. He <laughs> learned in the second half. The pod, Dave. Hopefully. Well, you know, I've not met Eric yet, but there's a few things I'd just like to speak to him about. And, and the Villa <laughs> game was one of them where it was like, why is it taking you so long to change things? We actually changed our entire pressing structure off the back of that game to this point in the season where we've gone 4 1 4 1 because that dodgy 4 2 3 1 narrow shape, it was awful. And like, that's something that Eric needs to like. Look, Ajax, they had all the ball. They had 70% possession. They were never playing a game where they were sitting deep. If this Man United team sits deep quite a bit, that's by design from Eric Ten Hag. Okay, so make the defensive system better because at the moment it's not. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> uh, Dave, we'll finish on the positive note of United 3, Aston Villa 2 at Villa Park. But uh, Dave, been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on to the pod and for giving us some of your time. And, hopefully get you back on in the summer, do a Euro special or something like that and get some free line stats from you. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully, uh, Kobe Kobe Mayno, sorry, will be uh, chilling on the beach in (laughs) wherever he wants to be chilling, not playing in the Euros in the summer. And come back nice and fresh for a new season at Manchester United with some maybe some good signings. All right, boys, let's move on to the rest of the Premier League then. So, Lauro, West Ham versus Arsenal. Obviously, West Ham coming off the back of 3-0 at Old Trafford. Arsenal had probably their biggest win of the season against Liverpool. A game, West Ham away, that that isn't an easy one these days. But I think with how Arsenal done uh, against Liverpool, they'll be looking to carry on that momentum and, and pick up all three at West Ham. They'll definitely definitely be looking to, won't they? And I don't think they've got a choice now. They've had their little blip and if there's another one, they'll be out of it. So they need to go to the London Stadium, pick up all three points, no questions asked. Uh, they've got the quality to do it. They've won there before. 
And this is the business end of the season where we need to see Arsenal come to the fore now if they're going to be a proper title contender. So absolutely no excuses. It's a difficult game. But if you want to be Premier League champions and you need to beat West Ham, you need to beat West Ham and they should be able to do that. One of the sides that they're obviously up against that title race, Tomo, Man City. We just touched on how impressive they were uh, against Brentford. They've got Everton at home. We've obviously spoken about the uh, embarrassment of riches they've got up front. But Everton will obviously come give it a go. I've read that Onana might be back in. He's obviously an important player for them. But obviously fully expecting Man City to pick up all three. And will you be sticking with Foden as captain? No, I'll be bringing in Haaland. As my captain, I think he, he looked a bit rusty, to be fair, on Monday. Obviously, he's just come back from injury. Um, but I don't expect Foden to go and bag a couple or three or um, against Everton again, just because the, like it's rare for a, str- uh, a midfielder to to notch a hat-trick. But yeah, look, there's not, nothing much more to add to that game other than City are going to batter Everton. <laughs> I just think no, sometimes it... City have these games, don't they? Like Brentford uh, last year, where it's just... And there's been games where like Palace have gone a couple goals up. I know City have come back in some of them, but it almost feels like such a Man City home win that that might be one where they just find themselves sort of 1-0 down against Everton. Lampard got a result yeah, well, there last year. And it's the sort of thing that yeah, Pep would do um, to like drop Foden now. Oh, no, you can't score a hat-trick at Brentford. You know, he wasn't in the right space to receive the ball from Doku in the second half, so he's dropped and in comes Grealish. So I wouldn't bet on anything that Pep's going to do. And Everton are a funny team sometimes. They can go and get a result. So, um, yeah, either 7-0 or one all. Tomo, did I read something that Grealish was annoyed with the lack of game time or not coming off of the bench and has been... Like alleged to have left training early. Uh, is that just speculation? Anything in that? Well, I don't know if it's true or not, but and I, obviously it's just purely speculation, like you get with these things. But Guardiola has always done that with his wingers. I think when, if you think back of when Sterling was at the club, Mares was at the um, at the club, they always dipped in and out of the team, and whoever wasn't performing at a world class level at that moment in time might have six weeks out of the team. And it's just happening that way with Jack Grealish a little bit. This season's probably gone on for a little bit longer than he thought, but it's up to him when he gets when he gets back into the team to basically be unplayable and undroppable. Because at the minute, his performances have been okay, but Doku's have been better probably. Yeah, indeed. A um, couple of other Prem games just to, to mention, boys. So the, the people keeping the pace at the top, Liverpool home to Burnley, Tottenham home to Brighton. So they'll both be looking to pick up all three points. As you say, we just touched on Arsenal at West Ham, City at home to Everton, Liverpool, Burnley, Tottenham, Brighton. But it's starting to get towards that business end of the season where dropping any points is a significant step back in uh, in the Premier League title race. So look forward to seeing those games. Boys, just want to touch on something before we go move on to the EFL about the news that's broken today about the blue cards. Tomo, can you just give a bit bit of an update about what that news is and, and what that's set to mean? Okay, yeah. So it looks like football is going to introduce blue cards um, as a way of testing these uh, sin bins. Um, the blue card will be shown to a player for cynical fouls or dissent to officials. Um and if you get a blue card, it means you'll be sin bin for 10 minutes. 
Now, if you want my opinion on that, I think it's absolute fucking horseshit. Um, sorry for the language, but I just think what we need right now with all of this VAR controversy and referees getting, um, I guess, getting criticised week after week, what we need is less things for the officials to do and we need less VAR and less, um, I guess, interventions into the game. We need to simplify everything. Simplify the handball rule. Simplify the offside rule. We need to simplify everything. We don't need to add things, other things into the mix. And the idea of a blue card and a sim bin just, it basically means that if you tell the ref to fuck off because of a decision, you get sent off for 10 minutes. So your team will then play in a low block for 10 minutes and ruin the spectacle for the fans for, for those 10 minutes. And then what happens is then after, after 10 minutes happens, a, another player on the other side gets a blue card and then it becomes a 10 v 11 the other way and they just sit in another low block. So then potentially you might have 30, 40 minutes of a game where you've got just teams sitting in, playing a low block and it's just ruining the spectacle. I just think what these officials and these decision makers try and do, they try and justify their existence and they try, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. So they try and solve these issues that come up but the reality of it is, is they they solve them with issues. They solve them with solutions that create ten more problems, and then and then it's just a never ending cycle, and it just seems to be that way. So I just leave football alone, please. Is there anything on if you get a blue card and come back on? Are you then on a booking? Like if you then were to bring someone down and foul them, do you get a second yellow and you're sent off? Like if you got given a second blue card in the space of a game, are you off for the rest of the game? Do you, do you know how they're planning on making it work? No, just just that they're planning on introducing it as a trial next season, potentially in the smaller competitions like the Women's FA Cup. And there was talk of even introducing it to the Men's FA Cup as well and just seeing if it works. Um, I hope the trial goes terribly and it's never introduced in the Premier League or Champions League. The only, I guess, positive from it is that already the president of UEFA, that Alexander Seferin, has come out and said he doesn't want it. But the problem with that, in, it, it, the problem with that is basically he doesn't have the power to stop it if the decision makers at IFAB change the rules of football to include the blue card. I'm, I'm very, very sad um, about this. I think refereeing and the world, uh, the rules of football is a space that is subject to quite a lot of confusion and poor decision-making over the last couple of years. And I had assumed as a fan that over the last couple of months, as it's got worse and worse and worse and worse, that the world of refereeing would have been in a room trying to come up with a way to enhance the use of VAR um, and get better at making decisions from it or scrap it altogether. So to hear that they've come out of those meetings... Um, with a card coloured blue that means a player is going to be sent to the touchline for 10 minutes instead of doing anything about what's already a catastrophe within our game is um, extremely disheartening as a football fan. So I don't think it's been thought through very much. I agree with Teagal that we don't need anything else confusing the referees that already aren't sure how to do their job. And I've got lots of questions as well. I.e. you get a blue card for dissent. 
Does a goalkeeper get one? Or is he allowed to bellow fuck off from the touchline? Because if not, you just tell your referee, if you're angry, instead of going to the referee, go to the goalkeeper and say, call the referee a couple of names, will you? Because you can't get sent off. <laughs> now, it's an interesting point, that, actually. Like, if he if he made a cynical foul, do you sim bin your keeper? Because you're not making a substitution then. So do you, like, chuck your centre-back yeah. and goal for 10 minutes and then stop the game? And If you're yeah. on a yellow card, Look, they... can you get a blue card? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's utterly ridiculous. The point of the yellow and red card system is, is, is basically not being utilised correctly by the referees. Otherwise, it would work. If they just booked everyone who showed dissent and then booked them again, if they told them to fuck off, then it's a red card. Players would stop, but they just don't. And there's no consistency. And then it... And now, now they're sort of introducing this blue card to try and solve a problem that's already solvable with the yellow and red card. They just don't use those, the current rules properly. It's, it's an absolute joke. They're ruining the, the beautiful game that I love. And um, like Laura said, I, I'm equally as sad about it. And I just hope we, this never sees the light of day. I'd just say... Um... I've got a little bit of insight into this in the the league that I was playing footy with introduced this. And I think it's still running. You just don't see it that often anymore. But um, Descent was basically in the level that I was playing. uh, There wasn't any blue card, but you could be sin bin for 10 minutes where the ref would effectively give you a yellow card, but like point you to the dugout and then you'd go off for 10 minutes. And to start with... Bit similar to this year, how we started seeing a real uptick in yellow cards because they were looking to stamp down on stuff. There's a real like uptick in people going off for dissent, but you just don't really see it too much more. And people that isn't because people are like, oh, I don't want to get Simbin, so they're showing the refs more respect. I think the refs have just got lapsed with it. And I think that would end up happening with this. You'd see a real uptick in blue cards getting administered, and then all of a sudden it might drop off, and then you've got people in the VAR room going, well, is that not a cynical foul? Should he have been simbined? Or it looks like he shouted at the ref there or showed dissent. So why didn't he get a blue card? And then more of the talk after the game and on the radio and on podcasts and things like that will be around thresholds for blue cards. And was that a bad decision? And if they'd have got a blue card, then they'd have been down for 10 men for the last 10 minutes and that could have changed the game. I just, yeah, I just think, as you boys have said, it adds another layer of complexity to the game. Yeah. Add to can the I, layer complexity just... to VAR as well. Because at the moment, VAR can review red card decisions, but not yellows. Can they review blues? Because if you're the opposition yeah, team, a... you're going to want the other team down to 10 men for 10 minutes, aren't you? You could say, oh, that's not a cynical foul. He's like, he stumbled and tripped him. You know, what? what's the threshold for cynical? You know, oh, I, it looks like he's dragged him back, but he actually hasn't. So can you then review a, a blue, as you say? It just seems a ridiculous choice to try and bring in. What what I want to say is what what do these decision makers and lawmakers what is their end game? Because they're trying to create this perfect game where nobody makes mistakes, nobody makes makes fouls, no passions in the game, so you can't question any decision. There's it. The, the beauty of football is that is that players make mistakes, players make fouls, and and. It's messy sometimes. It's not like I just don't get what the end game is, where they just keep bringing in new rules to overcomplicate things. And we don't need more. 
sort of camera shots of the, the officials. Like, imagine Mike Dean with a blue card. He'd absolutely shag having a blue card, wouldn't he? And oh, it's yeah. just like, we, what we need is 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 less officials and, and less officials being the, the talking point of the, the weekend and more just about the football. And this this blue card introduction just seems like that that sort of the reverse of that and it's a shame. But why is it blue as well? Yeah. Like, where's I know. That from? Just give them a just give them a yellow but like gesture to the touchline that they're getting yeah. Simbin. Tell them they're getting Simbin. You can already see some of these smarmy refs, can't you? Just pulling a blue from their top pocket and not not looking at the player, just sort of brandishing it and sending him off. But they're just gonna get a mouthful of abuse for giving the blue card. So then are you upgrading it to a a red? It's, it's not gonna work. And quite often refs could be free. surrounded by multiple players all shouting stuff. Yeah. Like, is that is that VAR gonna come and they're gonna have to like lip sync who said fuck off and who hasn't? And then a three or four players from each team gonna have to go off at any given time. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's imagine an that. absolute or... shower of shit four players surrounding a ref because of a penalty decision, they all, they do actually give him dissent. So they're down to seven men, but then VAR look at the penalty and it actually wasn't and they overturn it. But those guys have still told the ref to piss off. So they're still dissent. This is this is exactly what I mean. They're, they're trying to solve one problem, but creating 20 more. And it's, yeah, so yeah, what and it's like what there's no one in... Go on. I was just going to say, there's no one in that room with them, pointing out all of these things that we're just saying. Surely there's someone in the room and with the decision makers going, yeah, but this decision about blue cards will create this problem, that problem, another problem. And what what about what happens with in this instance or that incidence or that circumstance? But they just do it anyway because they're just trying to justify their existence, trying to justify their big salaries. It's a joke. It's a joke. Boys, let, let's leave that there. Let's go to a few leagues in the EFL that are blessed without having to deal with VAR and some of these uh, stupid, stupid refereeing choices. Championship, Loro, Leicester go to Watford. Is that a game as a Leeds or a Southampton or an Ipswich fan that you earmark as one potentially for Leicester to drop some points? I think it's a game that no one's interested in. They're just gone, aren't they? <laughs> when I look at the league table now, I don't look at Leicester in the slightest. I just look at Southampton and Ipswich, really. Yeah. Um, and whoever the next one in front of you is. But it's a 23-team league now, isn't it? Leicester have gone. There's no point speaking about them anymore. It is a procession. And um, well done, Leicester. And Leicester fans, I hope you're very happy. You've won the league. And the rest of us are here trying to pick up the pieces, trying to deal with Russell Martin's Southampton, who haven't lost since September, which they've never done before. Um, so yeah, I'm not bothered about about the foxes against the hornets. What will be, will be. I thought you were going to go full come down with me then. Yeah, All I right. did see it, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> um, on that Southampton, they're home to Huddersfield. I've seen that Russell Martin is up for his fourth manager of the month nomination in a row, four months consecutively, but hasn't won any of them. And it's likely that Daniel Fuck's going to win this month. So just kind of shows that Southampton are not always winning every game each month and other teams are keeping up the pace with them, but they're just on an elongated uh, run. Just touched on Leeds there, Lauro. Uh, Leeds play Rotherham. Um, highlighted that they're both sides from Yorkshire. Would that be classified as a Yorkshire derby? Is there any bad blood between Leeds and Rotherham fans from being a Yorkshire derby or or not really? 
Well, being the Yorkshireman that I am, I'd know all about that. I think geographically, <laughs> obviously, it's a derby. But, I mean, I personally haven't got any ill blood towards the Millers. And I think Leeds have probably got bigger fish to fry in terms of local rivals <laughs> when we play them in the forms of maybe the Sheffield sides. And, I mean, Bradford is the big derby for Leeds, but obviously haven't been in the same league for years. So, um, no, I don't think... You know, there's there's much heightened on that one because they're both in Yorkshire, but obviously it's another must-win game for Leeds. Other sides that are up near there, Tomo Ipswich versus West Brom. Ipswich in fourth, West Brom in fifth. Obviously, Ipswich plummet in a little bit. Um, their form's taking a battering. They're on at twelve thirty, and probably a game that they need to win at home to West Brom to stop the rot if they still want to be in contention for the automatics or else Southampton and Leeds are going. Yes, it is a big game for them, just, just given the fact that, well, every game's big at, at this stage of the season, but given the fact that West Brom are so close to them. I actually don't think their last result, I know they lost, but it was like three, they gave the ball away quite cheaply three times, individual errors. And if they can cut that out, they've got Keith Moore now, who obviously scored twice the other day, so he's hit the ground running. Feels like they, they could turn a corner here with a big win and a, and a statement win against West Brom. Their promotion rivals for sure. Bit of manager news. So I'm not sure if it's confirmed yet, boys, uh, for the championship. It looks like Blackburn set to part ways with their manager and Laura Eustace, someone who we've spoken about throughout the, the history of the pod, really, ever since uh, his Berman sacking. He, um, he looks likely to be the man to come in. Blackburn were up and around the playoff positions. He obviously got Sammy Smoddix, who's right up there in the goal scorers charts, which you alluded to on the last pod. And in Eustace, if he comes in, might be a force again. Yeah, I feel a little bit for um, Yondale Thomason, the outgoing Blackburn manager. A, because it seemed that John Eustace was coming in to replace him before I'd even heard that he'd been sacked or Blackburn had part of company with him. But B, I don't think he's done a poor job. Blackburn don't spend money the same as quite a lot of the big guns in the championship, and they have flirted in and around the upper estuals. They were very close to get sneaking into the playoffs last season, um, and they've got a couple of shining, shining leading lights there, like Sammy Smollett, who's had a great year. But sometimes in the championship, um, a couple of, because everything's so close, a couple of losses or a bad month, and all of a sudden you look like you're doing poorly, and I don't think that's the case. Having said that, John Eustace is a perfect fit though, I think. I think he's a, a manager that will do well on more of a modest budget in relation. Um, he's got good pedigree now in the championship in terms of what he did at Birmingham, and I think he'll get the best out of Blackburn. So not a bad um, appointment, but slightly disappointed to see the back of Yondell Thomason. Yeah, I'm just looking at the table. Um, they've done okay in like cup competitions, but they're only five points off the bottom three now, and I think it's only one league win in 10 or 11 for them and they've got Stoke at the weekend who are two places behind them in 20th but only a point ahead obviously Birmingham have made their move and brought Tony Mowbray in so potentially a couple sides there that they're thinking might get out of the trouble and Blackburn really need to be careful not to get dragged into that albeit I think Rotherham, Sheffield United and QPR and Huddersfield are poorer sides than them I just think that they're maybe hitting panic mode a little bit and think we need a manager in now to to keep us in this league and, and grow again next year yeah, I don't think it's a disgusting sacking, um, like a few of them have been in the championship this season, but I just felt a bit sorry for him. Maybe it's because he'd come across like a nice guy and I don't think he's done a dreadful job. Um, having said that, like you say, if you're five points off the relegation zone in football management at a club like Blackburn in the championship, the Brighton's probably on the wall, isn't it? Although I don't think they'd be in any danger of going down. I think the three that are in the relegation zone at the moment are probably going to go. 
was just do a wrap up of the rest of the EFL. Actually, a rare week where there's not too many big games in League One and League Two, but we'll just go through the fixtures that the kind of main protagonists in the league have. Uh, Portsmouth are away at Carlisle, Bolton are away at Northampton and Peterborough away at Wickham. So they all are on their travels, but Derby are home to Shrewsbury. So they'll be hoping to uh, pick up some points on some of those teams if they can drop some points away from home. And the main three sides or top three in League Two, certainly they're away from home as well. Stockport go to Grimsby, Mansfield are at Forest Green, uh, Barrow at Wimbledon, Wrexham are at home. So much like Derby, they'll be hoping to pick up some points there on those sides. But Obviously, we'll uh, reflect on that on Monday and look ahead to uh, some some midweek action in League One and League Two. Laurie, just want to come to you. So last time we spoke, Yeovil had lost uh, against Maidstone. Uh, obviously, you weren't too disappointed with it with the run Yeovil have been on and a side that potentially we'd earmarked to drop some points against, especially being on a plastic pitch. Uh, back on our travels to Kent, as you alluded to last time, go to Tunbridge Angels, just uh, how we're looking for that game and if we've got any returning faces from injury. I think we're hoping to have Michael Smith back, which will be a big boost because he's our best player, really. Um, but Tommy Angels are another plastic pitch, which we haven't really liked this season. Three of our four losses have come on a plastic pitch. So, And I'm just kind of, it's weird, we're 10 points clear, but I'm just looking over my shoulder at Worthing and thinking they're a really good side. I actually said to someone today, we're 10 points clear of Worthing and we beat them away. If we had lost that game, it would be four points and we'd be one game away from being really, really tight. Yeah. So it's funny how it can swing, even when you've got a massive lead. Um, having said that, the reverse fixture of Tombridge Angels, we dealt with them really easily at home. They were one of the poorer sides I've seen. So hopefully they still are, and we need three points um, just to give ourselves that really, really, really nice breathing space that we've had for most of the last three or four months. So, uh, yeah, hopeful for all three. Great stuff. Tom, I'm going to finish with you as well. You were this week's trivia question. Um, so just if you want to uh, put the listeners out of their misery and just quickly recap the question for us and then let us know what the answer was. Yeah, so the question was, um, what linked the sides that finished 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th and 12th in the Premier League last season? And the answer was, they're all from London. <laughs> and who were those sides? Um, Brentford, Tottenham, Chelsea, Crystal Palace, and one other. <laughs> Fulham. West Ham. Yeah, must. It was Fulham. Fulham. Yeah, West Ham finished to 16th, I believe. Good stuff. Um, <laughs> right, boys, that's all we got time for. We'll be back on Monday. As I say, we'll review all that weekend action, look ahead to the midweek and return of European football, and it's back to my turn on trivia. So, cheers, boys. Pleasure as always. Have a good one. Thanks, boys. One, two, three.